Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The been thinking about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Say it's alright Say it's alright It's alright Have a good time Cause it's alright Oh, it's alright Now listen to the beat Kind of pet your feet you got so I really regret the fact that we used Dead Souls and The Crow already. Like, like I thought that would have been a perfect Trent Reznor, you know, way to kick the show off. But no, instead we've gone with some jazz uh, to represent the film that we will be talking about today, Soul. My name is Dave Hanready. Uh, there will be no popcorn this week. It's no encore's music and movies offshoot in which we talk about a film or films that have a musical connection. And we go from there and see what happens. So I am once again joined by Norma Howard. Hello. Hello. How are we? And, and I keep waving. Is. I have to stop waving. <laughs> Nobody's looking. Hey, how are you doing? Not bad, yeah. It's a very sunny Sunday afternoon. Most of Dublin has snow, but I don't have it out here in Castle Knock, so I guess I'm just going to have to keep going and just get on with my life. Um, as noted, we will be discussing a film in this episode. That episode is Soul, which came out at Christmas. It's the latest Pixar film in which a man dies in order to live. And we'll be discussing that later on. Full of spoilers, as always. But first... 
what we've been watching. Uh, I'll go first. I'll just say that, like, I've been trying over the month of January, watching lots of films as always. I've been trying to only watch new stuff for stuff I haven't seen before. Uh, although I did make a kind of a household-friendly exemption for the Mission Impossible series. And I watched uh, Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation and Fallout, which was just always a joy to revisit. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to, to, to diving into my brand new tom cruise anatomy of an actor giant hardback book that came in the post this week which is outrageous and i can't wait um but yeah i've mostly been watching films i haven't seen before whether they're brand new or whether they're old and there's too many to mention but what i will do is i've picked out a few highlights so i picked out films i've given at least four stars to and in one case four and a half uh we'll start there uh, phantom thread higgs i finally watched it <laughs> and i loved it this was such a big moment for me i was so I was so worried that you, I, was just, I was going to see, you know, I think you told me that you were watching it and I, I, I thought that I was going to be on Letterboxd and I'd hit refresh and I'd see like two and a half stars, three stars and be like, you bastard, like, you utter bastard. But yeah, no, you, you loved it, which I was really surprised by because you, you're not as convinced, certainly by Paul Thomas Anderson as, as I am. I think he's kind of like, uh, to you what Michael Mann is to me where it's like you you're, you love him and I'm kind of a bit agnostic to Michael Mann um, you do have some PTA movies that you love but generally as if you were to listen to our There Will Be Blood uh, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Carol Robert Ford episode you know not bowled over by a movie like that so yeah this was a, a great surprise for me and a great relief I'm glad. Uh, it was just so wonderfully elegant. It was beautiful to look at. All the performances were amazing. It drew me in, particularly towards the end. I love the ending. Uh, Vicky Creeps, what a performance. I've never seen her in anything before. She stole the film. I mean, like, up against Day-Lewis in his, in his uh, as of now, final ever role. Uh, it was amazing, and I can see myself revisiting it. I do find PTA to be hot and cold. I'm either with him or I'm not with him, and I was very much there this time, which was great. Also worth mentioning, sorry, you mentioned Michael Mann, by the way. I did watch Thief for the first time, James Cameron that was pretty great uh, but I will say that other things I've watched this month I watched uh, aforementioned on previous No Popcorn episodes Dick Johnson is Dead which is that Netflix documentary which Higgs kind of raved about from just a few months ago in which a filmmaker captures the final days of her dying father uh, with his kind of permission um, and they stage elaborate death sequences to try and kind of I guess poke fun at the idea of death or whatever but it's mostly about him and his final days and so on um, there are some ethical questions in as much as like he does have uh, dementia and therefore you're like you know how much of this can he really commit to the more it goes on um, however I did meet it in the kind of spirit of the film and that I felt that it was a celebration of this guy's life and it was quite bittersweet and beautiful and um, I can no longer ever, not that I was, but I can no longer slag off Higgs for crying at films because from pretty much the opening scene until the final scene, I was weeping in some capacity, often sobbing outright. It really did a number on me and I would recommend checking it out. It's on Netflix now. It's Dick Johnson is Dead. I watched The Assistant just yesterday, which I think you also mentioned recently. It's kind of like, it was kind of sold as like the first, you know, Me Too movie and it's about an assistant in a film producer's office and she suspects something is going on and she goes to a HR guy played brilliantly by Matthew McFadden of Succession fame who is now clearly only going to play corporate scumbags for the rest of his career. Uh, it's a very kind of patient drama, a day in the life of the assistant played brilliantly by an actress called Julia Garner. Uh, it was great. Like I can see why it would turn people off because nothing really happens but, and that's the point. But I thought it was very, very true to life and captured very, very well. Uh, First Reformed, Ethan Hawke's film from a few years ago that I 
want to get into now. Um, how did he not get nominated slash win the Oscar for Best Actor here? I do not know. Very heavy film, not one for Friday night as I threw it on, but nonetheless, it was absolutely brilliant. And one last one. Um, I watched a film called Spontaneous, which has maybe the worst poster I've seen for a film in a very long time. It's the two leads kind of like glaring at you with smiles on their faces and a big love heart in the background that says spontaneous like it looks like fan art it's really bad uh but the film i thought was really really good it's about a bunch of teenagers inexplicably uh they start exploding and no one knows why in like an american town and it's just about Catherine langford from 13 reasons why is the lead and she's trying to navigate her life while this is happening um you know it's it's hip it's cool it's edgy but i thought it actually had a lot to say and I thought it kind of committed to its darkness quite surprisingly. There's a couple of moments in the film where a couple of things I thought the film might do, a couple of choices I thought it would take that it didn't take. And so by the end of it, I was kind of watching it and I was like, you know, I give it four stars. It might be half a star too generous, but the fact that it kind of, you know, sold itself and kind of stayed true to what it was, it's a film that very much knows what it is. And I, I found it very, very enjoyable. If uh, genuinely harrowing at times for a kind of a, you know, dark rom-com so to speak i think if i was like 18 and i saw this i'd be like this is the best film of all time but i'm not 18 anymore but it is very very good norma what have you been watching um so i watched a film i think it's up on netflix baby teeth it's by shannon murphy um it came out last year at the exact same time as tenet which was unfortunate (laughs) because i feel like everyone spent their one opportunity to go to the cinema like sit in an actual cinema on tenet so i feel like it maybe you would have seen the posters around but it just didn't um get the as much of an audience it's really really good it stars eliza scanlon who was in i think she plays Beth in Little Women. It's the only other thing that I'd seen her in. She's excellent in it. So, so good. She plays a 16-year-old girl who is terminally ill and basically um, fancies this guy who's a just terrible drug dealer, a horrible 24-year-old guy. Um, But he makes her really happy and then her parents basically want her to spend kind of like her what time she has left in a happy place and enjoying her life. So they allow this guy to move in with them. And then it's just kind of playing out the last kind of section of her life. And it's really, really gorgeous, really beautiful film. Um, I got also a movie subscription, which I do not know if it's quite worth it just yet. We'll see how we get on. I watched um, It's Only the End of the World, which is a film by Xavier Dolan. I think it won the grand prize at Cannes when it came out and was very controversial because people were like this is the biggest load of shit ever why is this winning um, I think there was a few like walkouts or boos which I think is not very common at Cannes either that people boo um, I really liked it it like it is based around um, a guy who's a writer he returns home to his family after not seeing them for 12 years and it's just like the difficult horrible questions and discussions around that uh Marion Cotillard is in it Lea Seydoux um Vincent Castle's in it like all the acting is really really good it's um a little bit of a stressful film and it definitely doesn't give you an awful lot like it's very unsatisfying um they also like must have spent loads on the budget on music there's like a lot of like very popular songs that drop in that you're like how much money did you spend on just licensing these songs the song the film finishes on a Moby track and I was just like what like that must have cost loads to get that in there um so yeah it was grand past the time it, like if you have Moby 
give it a watch. Can I just watch- say, sorry, I can't believe you you have movie, but you 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 refuse to join Letterboxd, like Letterboxd, uh, <laughs> Letterboxd.com slash no encore if you want to follow me. Higgs, what's your handle oh, on there again? I, <laughs> I don't want people to follow me on Letterboxd. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already finding it really stressful that like I, I used to be on my own on Letterboxd and it was just me, you know, make giving arbitrary uh, ratings to movies and now there's more people and you know you have someone like the the media hall monitor david henrady like sending you a message of of your of your own letterbox to yeah, like rating and, and questioning like, you really? calling you a monster for <laughs> for what you say about something so uh, please nobody follow me on letterbox <laughs> <laughs> all right back to you um, so uh, another film that was up on movie was patterson it came out i think about 2 years ago it's adam driver jim jarmusch film it's very slow moving. It's literally about this bus driver in Patterson in a small town called Patterson. And he writes poetry and it's just over the course of like about a week of his life. Um, but it's really a sweet film. I enjoyed it. Um, like quite cute, quite nice. Adam Driver's, I think, is excellent in nearly everything he does. And then I caved and watched all of Bridgerton. Um it is utter, complete and utter trash. Like, I only, I kind of hate watched it towards the end um, because it's it's essentially just Gossip Girl, but Regency period Gossip Girl. Because there's a lady, there's this woman called Lady Whistledown who sends out weekly newsletters with the goss on them. And that's pretty much what it is. And it's got a voiceover by Julie Andrews doing basically like a XOXO Lady Whistledown. Uh, really strange. There's some cool like pop song covers in it that I was like, oh, that's fun. The costumes are really nice. But ultimately, I just didn't find it really interesting. If I think it's going to be, there's going to be definitely a, se- a season two, if not more. And I probably will not bother watching them. Um, and then the another film I watched just to round it all up is One Night in Miami. I think we're going to talk about it a little bit later on because... Uh, Kemp Powers, uh, who wrote the play that it's based on and the screenplay as well, also co-directed and co-wrote Soul. So I think we're going to have a little bit chat about that later on. But um, yeah, it was an all right watch. Mr. Higgins, what have you been up to in your, Um, you know, please don't, in in your seclusion of will not be judged movie criticism? (laughs) Um, I think I mentioned last time uh, my, my January watching was kind of, a Kubrick based one. So I started started the year with two thousand and one A Space Odyssey. Kind of you know, what 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 really do you say more about that movie? The one thing I kind of picked up on it and having only been kind of revisiting uh, his earlier stuff is that if you kind of agree with him that Spartacus isn't really his movie, he doesn't because he kind of kind of got parachuted in in the last week because um Kirk Douglas basically fired the director who was making it. It's the first time that he ever made a movie in colour and good Lord, um, does he put some colour in this thing. Um, but other things that I watched because, uh, yeah, 2001, obviously great. Uh, Killer's Kiss, which is like one of his really, really early films even before uh, The Killing. Um, it is kind of similar. He talked about it being like a tune-up. He wanted to get some practice and it's a movie about a, a boxer. Um, so it's kind of fitting. Um the script could have been written on the back of an envelope, but in terms of just like him working and his uh, vision, it's like fantastic. Um, 
you know, it's pretty guerrilla. Um, he's shooting on locations, which is kind of something that he basically never really wanted to do. Like he hated, uh, he hated location shooting. He always wanted to be on a studio to the point that I, I discovered recently. And then you, Dave, like, uh, into our WhatsApp group was like, you know, they, they were like, uh, Tom Cruise is basically on a green screen and eyes wide shut. And I was like, yeah, pretty much. And you know, the whole, the whole set is, uh, um, like built, but um yeah it's just really really great for like absolute shoestring budget it manages to get like a rooftop chase in new york that's like phenomenal um also watch paths of glory which was really good um not too sold on kirk douglas leading man but again gorgeous looking film um some amazing location shooting in these like gorgeous i'm assuming uh french palatial palaces um so aside from that, I well, hang on, w- hang on. Before you move on, before you move on from Kubrick, can you? I can't believe you haven't given this this January project of yours the respect it deserves. The name, the name that you uh, that you oh, have for this. Well, I didn't come up with it. Was, it was my girlfriend came up with it. Stan Jan. Perfect. Stan Jan. Hashtag I was Stan like, Jan. Because <laughs> when you put it in the dock as Stan Jan, and then I was just like, for some reason, my ha- my mind immediately went to the documentary Jihad Jane, and I was just like, why? Why is it called this? <laughs> and then I tried to look up a film called Stan Jan and I couldn't find one. So there you go. Well, you know, maybe the, the, the URL is free for me to take. I know. Um, I, <laughs> I revisited a movie probably like only two months after I watched it for the first time. Uh, Dave, you kind of had your uh, been going through your movies uh, that you wanted to watch for the first time. And last year, a movie that's kind of been sitting on my letterbox watch list for probably years uh, Sweet Smell Success I watched it was immediately like okay this is like five star this is already I feel like one of my favorite films to the point that I I went into a bricks and mortar shop and I asked the person behind the counter I was like good day do you have a copy <laughs> of Alexander McKendrick's Sweet, Sell of, Sweet Smell of Success on Blu-ray and if not can you get me one? I got them to order me a copy in this place so um, wow. re-watched it there the other day in this like, day and age um, yeah it was, it was the the best movie that I saw for the first time last year. I feel like it might be for you. You started the year, I think, with this. Um, it was the first film I watched this year. I loved it. It was an instant five star. Yeah, I mean, it's what is nineteen fifty four or forty nine or something. Fifty six. Okay, one of those. Uh, and it's like, so what? It's about like uh, Tony Curtis is like this kind of press agent, and it's 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 basically like fast talking bad men, and like you know this kind of like this newspaper columnist who's kind of in control of everything. Dialogue is unbelievable. Like I think my favorite line is easily when J. J. Hunsucker is like, you're dead, son. Get yourself buried. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, and even when I heard that line, I was like, I almost had to pause it the first time. I was like, how have I not heard this line just being like reappropriated by, you know, everyone else? How have I not seen some of this in like, you know, a lot of the classic movies you kind of like absorbed through The Simpsons when you were growing up? It's like, how have I not seen this referenced absolutely everywhere? Yeah, it's a really fascinating film, particularly Alexander McKendrick came from the Ealing studio. So he was, had made like the lady killers comes to Hollywood. This is his only Hollywood movie. And then he basically left, um, didn't get on well with Burt Lancaster. who was also the producer, but like, it's just like a stunning looking film. Um, again, shooting on the streets of New York, like the shots of skyscrapers, like the low angles, the black and white, got a great jazz score you know similar to uh soul which we'll be touching on later with fred katz and chico hamilton yeah just like i could you know press play and at the minute it ends it's just so so enjoyable um other things that were very enjoyable 
um, to celebrate, you know, patron saints of the pod, David Lynch. I watched The Straight Story for the first time um, the other day uh, when he turned 75. And this is one I've always kind of been like holding back on for some reason, even though I'd known it was meant to be great just because it's like it's such a departure for him. But uh, what a lovely, lovely movie this is. Uh, just Did you like, cry? So- Did you cry? <laughs> <laughs> No, actually, but like Aww. I could see, I don't, I don't think maybe it just wasn't in the was in, so in the crying zone, but um, yeah, like particularly afterwards, like Richard Farnsworth's face in this, and like you know, it was his last movie. He died a year after. I only kind of read after that he was like incredibly sick making this movie. Uh, he tragically took his own life because he had a terminal cancer. So like all that kind of like, if I rewatch it now, I think it, you know, guaranteed tears, but um. Yeah, it just was such a lovely, simple, um, you know, decent story. Um, very, very funny in the way that only kind of Lynch can be in like small town America. Uh, this like gorgeous, swelling uh, Angelo Badalamenti score. Um, just fantastic. And one other one, I watched uh, Rialto, which was released last year. This is um, Marco Halloran, who wrote uh, Adam and Paul and Garage. He adapted his own play, Trade, um, basically about this man in his kind of his mid 40s going through very much a crisis. Um, he loses his job. His dad has recently died and he kind of goes on this, you know, really destructive downward spiral um, where he meets like a young hustler, essentially, and develops a relationship with him. He has a massive dependency on alcohol. Um, a very very tough uh, movie to watch very like punishingly bleak um, but it has a monumental performance by um, Tom Von Lawler he's absolutely incredible in this um, just you know the way he kind of circles the drain for the whole movie is just like again very very tough to watch um, it doesn't kind of have some of the humour that you kind of had in Adam and Paul to kind of like let a little light in but um, not necessarily one I'll be revisiting, but yeah, pretty great achievement. It's uh, it's funny because like I mean like when I when I made a list of films to watch in January, which I've I've kept mostly to. I've kind of dipped in some, some kind of stuff here and there that I hadn't planned for, but like I was just looking at it and I was like, man, I was like, everything I'm watching is like melancholic as fuck, and I was just like, it just sounds like we're all kind of in this like mire of like watching these grim films but there is i don't know i I find that like even watching it like a quote-unquote depressing film uh i do love finding those kind of pockets of light it's like music as well it's like it doesn't need to be you know a wacky comedy to necessarily kind of have that in it so uh although i guess soul kind of touches on all of those elements to some degree a film that landed on christmas day for disney plus subscribers uh let's take a listen to the trailer and then we will talk about the movie streaming this christmas on disney plus look around Life has so much to offer. We only have a short time on this planet. Don't miss out on the joys of life. Remember to enjoy every minute of it. (laughs) Joey! (laughs) 
What has gotten into you, Let boy? Finish. Cougar. Disney and Pixar Soul. Rated PG. Only on Disney+. Plus. Okay, so there's Jamie Foxx there, rather uh, sledgehammering the themes of the film to you in the form of the trailer. Now, Higgs, you mentioned that you watched Sweet Smell of Success, and then about two months later you watched it again. I don't often see that elastic band turnaround, but I believe you watched this film twice, so in that case... Can you please give us some background to this thing and just summarize it a little bit before we get into the nitty gritty? Yeah, um, so this is directed by Pete Doctor, who is kind of now, I guess, like the main the main force of Pixar uh, after uh, John Lasseter left. Um, previously, he directed Monsters Inc. and Up and Inside Out, all kind of in the Pixar canon movies that are kind of very much have dealt with death and, uh, you know, Crisis is a fate. Um, so in this one, he has brought on, like before, he's brought on co-directors, but previously, like co-directors at Pixar, tend to be other animators who were writers. Um, in this particular movie, he was looking at making something about um, someone where he kind of wanted to ask the questions about, like, you know, why are we born with a personality? What am I supposed to do with my life? I think something that kind of was, you know, racking around his head after making Inside Out. And he kind of came up with this idea um, for this movie, originally kind of conceived it as maybe an actor or a scientist. And then I think he was he mentioned um, seeing a quote from Herbie Hancock um, about playing with Miles Davis for the first time and being like incredibly nervous and like messing up. And Miles Davis kind of just like went with it and they created something and the improvisation of it was kind of like what he was looking for and then decided that, you know, jazz makes a lot of sense. Uh, this is a movie about kind of doing the things that make you happy and doing the things that you love, even if they're not necessarily, uh, you know, financially viable. And that kind of applies to jazz kind of well. It's, you know, it's not overtly commercial. Um, but yeah, to come back to the co-director, um, they kind of realized pretty quickly that their lead character needed to be black. And if you've ever seen a Pixar movie, or if you've ever seen uh, the people who make Pixar movies, they're all white guys who wear Hawaiian shirts. Um, not a lot of diversity in the making of Pixar movies they've been getting a little bit better in in representation on the screen like in Up and Coco but in terms of like the people that make them it is a bit of a boys club uh, and particularly a white boys club so they brought in uh, Kemp Powers who Norma mentioned earlier um, he had written a play uh, One Night in Miami that um, went on to be made this year he'd been writing on star trek discovery apologies terrible with names of star trek shows and they brought him in basically to kind of help create a character out of joe and make him seem like a real person as opposed to like what the you know the white guy perception of what a black jazz artist would be like um so yeah it's it's touching again like on similar themes that inside out did it's a very strange movie uh for you know, what is essentially a kid's movie, but um, yeah, I think that's kind of the background on it. Yeah, just coming off your point there, I guess we can take a quick listen to Jamie Foxx discussing kind of what it meant to him, what it means for Pixar to have their kind of first African-American lead. Here's the clip. What was it like having so many different voices um, helping make sure that Pixar's first film with a black lead was as black as could be. Kent was smart, man. Kent was like, no, I, I want him to be black. I want that haircut to be, we got to go get a cut. That's a cultural thing, you know? And so in my career, it was crazy. I've never had to apologize for being black. I was on a living color. I had a black boss, black writers, black creators. Even when you walked on the set, it's, they were cooking. 
You know, I was like, man, what they, man, what they got? Is that that Parmesan? What, the, what kind of noodles? I mean, you know, it was, it was that. And then we went to Jamie Foxx show, all black, you know. And so for me, I've never had to worry about turning my black up or turning my black down. I just been me, and then it, and it has always worked out for me. And I, and I know that when when I do that, great things come out of it. So for me to be able to say and be proud to say, man, the first African American lead in Disney Pixar, that's amazing. That that feels good. So Jamie Foxx is an actor who I find quite interesting. I think he can be great, and I think he can be very visibly not interested in the film that he is in uh, for all kinds of reasons. Whether it's something like Miami Vice, which he clashed with Michael Mann on uh, an amazing film that we love on the show, of course. And I was <laughs> or, waiting for you to mention Miami Vice. Or whether it's something like Sleepless, this crap throwaway thriller from a few years ago, which is a remake of a good French film, French-Belgian film, I think, uh, in which he just doesn't care. But when he cares, as he does here, I think he can be very good. I love him in this. I think he's perfectly cast. Uh, Norma, what do you think of his performance and also the wider film thereof, of course? Um... Yeah, I think in general, like a wide sense of the film, the voice acting is excellent in it. Um, Yeah, him in particular, I didn't actually, weirdly enough, I didn't recognize his voice straight away out of like the trailer clips that I'd seen, Um, like as identifiably Jamie Foxx. I don't know if he's done a lot of um, voice acting or like sort of animated cartoon work or anything like that. Um, but the standard in general in the film is really, really high in the voice acting. It's absolutely gorgeous. And I think he does a really, really great job um, with Joe in getting that kind of like, just like, uh, I want to say sad, but sad sounds like a really bad word. Just getting that, like, getting you involved with Joe and getting you on Joe's side because he is trying so hard and he really loves jazz and he's trying to make it work and he's teaching in the school and he's trying to inspire these kids and like he definitely got you on side for a film where he's the lead but then also like at a at a certain stage it another character 22 kind of takes over a little bit and it kind of becomes her film I think when they were originally writing it it was primarily going to be about 22 and then they developed kind of Joe's side to it a bit more so it's kind of interesting seeing the leftover kind of structure of that that it does kind of flip into someone else's film a little bit um yeah I think he's he's uh, really good in this and and when you were kind of saying that you know immediately it's not so noticeably Jamie Foxx while I feel like every other um, voice actor in this is instantly recognisable and I kind of think it's that like um, I don't think he's played really a role like this like Jamie Foxx is kind of primarily you know you know him for big performances like you know the first time I think most people met him was in like any given Sunday and it's like everyone's given a bombastic performance in that movie um and then kind of when you go through his filmography like you know even like what he won the oscar for ray like that's a big performance django um ever mentioned miami vice like this is like you know maybe apart from like collateral like the the first time he's played kind of like a bit of an everyman and that just doesn't really seem like him he just like he oozes charisma so for him to play you know joe's not he's not a schlub, but like kind of like a pretty deflated person. It's just like, um, yeah, it's, it's not inter in, in like immediately, uh, recognizable. That's him. But I think that's good. Cause he kind of just like 
disappears into the role. Like, I don't think you want Jamie Foxx going all the way, you know, on the Jamie Foxx scale in this movie. Um, Especially so in... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> Just like you were saying, there's like, there are other voice actors that straight away, like Richard Aoadi, like... Also, his voice is everywhere, seemingly, because he, he pops up in The Mandalorian as well and a few other things. He's like, the second he he speaks, it's him straight away. Um, same with, like, Graham Norton is fantastic voice uh, voice actor. And again, just, like, really recognisable straight away, playing these sort of big characters. So, yeah, it is nice that his voice sort of blends more into an everyday relatable type of thing I guess is what they're going for uh, Nora mentions that Joe is a jazz teacher let's hear him in action trying to inspire his class one two three four stay on the beat two three four that's in sharp horns two three I see you Caleb So Connie got a little lost in it. That's a good thing. Look, I remember one time my dad took me to this jazz club, and that's the last place I wanted to be. But then I see this guy, and he's playing his chords with force on it. And then with a minor, I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. Then he has the inner voices, and it's like he's, it's like he's singing. And I swear the next thing I know, it, 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 it's like he floats off the stage. That guy was lost in the music. He was in it, and he took the rest of us with him. That's when I knew I was born to play. So yeah, it's your classic everyman tale of a man who teaches kids, tries out at a, a kind of an audition, it goes well, and then he dies horribly. Um, it's it's like you get the sequence of him uh, leaving like his audition for a, a, a legendary jazz musician played by Angela Bassett. Not enough of her in this movie, sadly. She's fucking great. And it's like you get this kind of comical detail of him avoiding multiple death scenarios as he walks along, not paying attention to the dangers around him until sadly, finally, he collapses into a manhole and wakes up in another dimension essentially so uh higgs now as someone who's seen this film twice um i, I don't know i mean like, like may- maybe none of us are in, in the best place to answer this question given that none of us have children but this is categorically not a kid's film right like like I, I, i'm not alone in this am i yeah my, my first my first watch of it i was like this is like what and it, i i found it fascinating because it's kind of it's kind of the movie that you could only make when you are like the head honcho, when you are the person that signs the checks uh Pixar, which is what Pete Doctor is. Um but unfortunately I have lots of friends with children, but they're not of an age that they'd probably be watching it. Because I was actually like I was very, very, very curious. Um you know, the second time around, I think, you know, you'd have to say that Yes, there's lots of incredibly weird things in this movie. Like this is a movie about death and this is a movie that has, you know, Carl Jung jokes, has jokes about George Orwell on state-sponsored education. Um, it has like visual cues from 2001 A Space Odyssey. There's a moment that is, I'm almost certain, just like, you know, ripped straight out of under the skin and you know there's a lot of inside Lewin Davis going on in this so maybe we'll get to later but 
at the same time, it has a talking cat. Um, you know, I watched I watched Up last night, and you know, when everyone talks about Up, everyone just talks about the first ten minutes or the first fifteen minutes of Up as if the whole movie was essentially like an animated version of Michael Haneke's Amore. When in fact, <laughs> it's qu- it's quite a goofy. You know, it's quite a goofy movie with you know, multiple talking dogs and the, you know, the toughest talking dog has a really squeaky voice and that's a funny joke. Um, so there's always a balance in these movies. I don't think I, I'd kind of noticed the balance the, the first time around, but like even the souls in uh, in Soul or the, the, the pre-souls or whatever 22 is, like they're cute little blue orbs um, that kind of like giggle. They're very fun. Uh, the whole, the great before, even though like, as a concept for an adult, it's a pretty like big thing to grasp and possibly even like a terrifying thing to grasp. The way that it's presented to a child is like this, you know, blue and like magenta paradise. Um, so I wonder, does all the things that we're like kind of like, oh, God, like you could, can't show that to a kid. Is that just zooming over the head and they're just like, oh, I thought the Jerry's were funny. I thought the, when, you know, when the cat chased its, you know, the, the light in the elevator, I thought that was funnier. When I ate the pizza, that was funny. Yeah, like it's it's a weird one. I've um, a friend of mine is a theater director and writer for like kids theater, and she says oftentimes that adults kind of underestimate kids' ability and capabilities to uh, take on and manage like bigger, heavier themes. And even if they're not able to fully process exactly what's going on, they will find the fun in things no matter what, that they will just find all the kind of like, yeah, cutesy, funny little things. Um, I do find it interesting with regard to the score or like two scores that are happening because there are kind of like two separate things that are happening in this that when I was thinking about it again and like does this appeal to kids what would they like about it what do they find interesting the score work is the thing that I think children would find least interesting it it feels like a very adult score um, even though I think um, John Batiste who did the sort of jazz score work and songs and elements to that he said that he tried to make it as accessible and sort of um, easy to digest as he could for kids because even it's referenced in the film often like young children just don't have that much of an interest in jazz or they don't think it's cool like there's a cute moment in the film then where it's like it uh it shows joe when he's going through his hall of fame so like the big moments in his life and there's like he joined this sort of like little rap crew and there's a little song in there which is very cute and then um yeah so i don't i don't know i feel like i'm still out on whether i think kids would really enjoy this or what they would get out of it but definitely the score felt on a kind of a different level to me than like other pixar films which i think might be more accessible uh, let's take a blast of the uh, shock horror I've queued up Trent Reznor and Annika Ross's side of the score. Uh, let's have a listen to a track called The Great Before slash You Seminar.
Uh, my boys, they can just do no wrong. Um, I will say that I agree with Norma. I think that that kind of music does feel maybe more pointed towards like kind of a like a more kind of harder sci-fi text, perhaps. But I I kind of like it being in there, not just because of who's doing it, but like I like those little eccentricities, you know, especially in a fucking kids movie for Christmas Day. I yeah, I I, I do notice that you you picked the, the like the the clip of what they did that doesn't sound just like a video game, of which that I'd be like, surely kids love this. You know, like this when when you're there actually in the great before and it's like it's very eight bit and it's, you know, like Sonic the Hedgehog. I, like I would have thought that like that would be um, far more appealing to to a kid than say like a Randy Newman score, which is kind of normally <laughs> what you get in a Pixar movie or, you know, a Michael Giacchino score or a Thomas Newman. <laughs> so. So yeah, um, I guess we mentioned earlier on as well. I, well, I guess like, like on the subject of you know kids film or not, I mean, the jury's still out. I agree, and it's inter- I, I was talking to uh, of all people, my therapist recently, and she was saying that she watched it with her kids, who I think are like youngish, and they're having all these kind of existential questions afterwards. Which I'm like, oh, I guess well that's interesting. I mean, like maybe it does provoke these kind of conversations, but then you also wonder like, well, do people? I guess like Pixar have always had this thing where they bake in content for you know the adults as well, but. Maybe they've, I think Higgs used the word balance earlier on. I mean, there was an element of me watching this film and I was kind of like, I'm not 100% sure who this is for. But also, even within the narrative itself, I'm not sure who the lead really is or whose story it really is. So, as Norma says, it's a two-hander. As Higgs mentioned, there's a character called 22, uh, as voiced by Tina Fey. And here is that character's introduction. And then, yeah, let's let's try and find out whose movie this is. Dr. Borgensen will be matched with soul number 22. Oh, we're going to get into this now. Excuse me. 22, you come out of this dimension right now. How many times have I to tell you? I don't want to go to Earth. Stop fighting this place. I don't want to. Go to Earth and have a life. 22 has been at the U Seminar for quite some time and has had such notable mentors as Gandhi, Abraham Lincoln and Mother Teresa. <laughs> I made her cry. Ignore that. Put me down. We're truly glad to have you here, Dr. Borgensen. <laughs> It is an honour having you prepare 22 for Earth. I'm going to make you wish you never died. Most people wish that, 22. <laughs> Off you go. Bye. Richie Ayoade is ridiculously distinguishable, isn't he? Like, it's, it's, it's like, insane. There's no... <laughs> scandalously. Like, in... I think it's season two of The Mandalorian that he does um some voice work in and I was just like you can't you just can't have him in anything anymore it's just like straight away and he's all I envision even though the character he's playing the um is he he's a Jerry Terry or a Jerry he's a Jerry sorry because Terry is the evil-esque one because it's also the film has like Terry is like the bad guy but not really the bad guy the bad guy's maybe kind of Joe is bad guy life. I don't know who is the bad guy, but um, but yeah, they're like designed as these weird sort of like floating kind of cubist style art forms. I don't know what they're really meant to represent. It's like their line yeah. drawings or something that have just kind of escaped from a Wattpad yeah. or whatever. It's cool. I like the look of it quite a bit. Yeah, it, it does. It looks really gorgeous. But who, like, like, who are we kind of rooting for here? Because I mean, like, or maybe that's too productive. But I mean, like. It feels like it's Joe's story, but then it feels like it's 22's story. They're kind of matched together. It's about trying to, like, 
you know, instill personalities and plant them into a, a new life on Earth. And obviously Joe is trying to get back to Earth and eventually, you know, lessons will be learned along the way. Um, let's just take one more clip, by the way, just to give you some more atmosphere here. It's kind of following on from this. It's when Joe essentially, like, finds himself in his new surroundings and isn't sure where he is and it's a whole new world. Let's have a listen to what that sounds like. Is this heaven? <laughs> no. Is it H-E double hockey sticks? Hi, Coyote! It's easy to get turned around. This isn't the great beyond. It's the great before. The great before? Oh, we call it the U Seminar now. Rebranding. Does this mean I'm dead? Not yet. Your body's in a holding pattern. It's complicated. I'll get you back to your group. Come on, little souls. Get on up here. Welcome to the youth seminar. Gather round, children. Today we're going to learn about death anxiety and existentialism. All those kind of lovely concepts. But I mean, like, obviously these two characters go on a journey together. Like I say, lessons are learned. Uh, There's an ending that we'll get to, which I found to be a bit of a cop-out. But ultimately, asking a couple of people after who'd seen this film, they had the same reaction. And their reaction was, I wanted to know what happened with 22. It feels like that kind of thread was ultimately kind of dropped and... Maybe they were the real kind of lead here or the real kind of person to pay attention to. I mean, where did you come out in it, really? Yeah, it's like, again, it's a tricky one. It also, like, there's a few sort of big questions or big statements that are made that they don't necessarily actually resolve or return to, which I think is like the issue a bit with 22, is that when you pose such large questions about like, how is a soul made? What is it made up of? How to actually nicely, neatly wrap all that up in a way is tricky. Um, Yeah, like I was saying earlier, apparently it started out as kind of 22 story and then it sort of changed over time, which a lot of scripts do. So I think maybe there was like a little bit of leftover material that... um, stayed in but wasn't fully properly like fleshed out um towards the end there's a point in the film actually where they sort of joe's questioning what he's doing in the the great before you seminar and um they're like oh yeah like we take a little bit of this and a little bit of this and this is how we make up a soul and then we send them to earth and uh they forget all of what happened before during the trauma of childbirth, which I think is meant as like kind of like a funny little throwaway comment. But it's actually quite a big statement <laughs> to be making. And I found that a little unnerving that they kind of were saying a lot of these like big sort of philosophical things, but then not really... Um, rounding it off. And I think that's the problem with 22's characters that she just has too many question marks over her head to sort of have a satisfactory ending to it. There's also a weird moment in the film where um, Joe is chatting to 22, who's voiced by Tina Fey. And 22 is meant to be a really, really old soul who's been in the great before forever because they have anxiety about Earth and not wanting to go to Earth in case it's an awful, icky, horrible, terrible place. And... um, he asks her why she sounds like a middle-aged white woman. And she's like, oh, I use this voice because it's the most annoying. 
Hans is like, all right. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> Does Tina Fey have an annoying voice? I, I actually didn't did. even know it was Tina Fey. I, I, I didn't. I had to look it up because I wasn't. I didn't quite recognize her. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm like, I'm not equipped to answer that question, so I'll just step <laughs> on. Uh, I will say though, it's a very weird little joke, and I was you, like, is that a well, joke? You mentioned weird moments. There's a moment in this movie, like the aforementioned Terry character, who's basically like the soul counter. Who, first of all, at one stage is like we haven't had an anomaly for centuries. And it's like, really? Like, no one has not wanted to die? Okay, strange. Um, but then, like, so Terry goes to Earth and is trying to track down Joe, kill him, and, like, you know, bring him back or whatever. And there's a moment where Terry straight up murders someone by accident and then undoes it. And at, at first I was like, Jesus. I was like, we're just straight up murdering people? Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, the word I would use is ethers him. Like, that that's the under-the-skin <laughs> moment. Like, if anyone's seen that, he just, like... Uh, I think it's it's the guy who's in the barbershop with Joe who's kind of, like, uh, always kind of putting Joe down from, like, the corner. And, yeah, he basically just gets pulled into, uh, like, kind of, it's like, horrific. this dark black abyss where his, like... His soul is like stripped out of his, you know, you know, like lifeless body. It's like it's a such a terrifying image. <laughs> like the second time around, I was like, oh, my God. Um, but yeah, just just on the um, on the kind of all the big questions that this, this is asking and does it, uh, you know, does it satisfy? I kind of it's it's similar to me like this. This seems very much a companion piece of Inside Out. And I'd watched that again recently and. Like I still, you know, on, on a very surface level, it's a very enjoyable film. But then all the things that Pete Doctor is trying to ask and all the questions that he is is raising. Yeah, I don't know if his uh, solutions to them make a lot of sense. Like in, in Inside Out, I'm still kind of like, is this movie just like completely about the idea that there is no such thing as free will? And, um, you know, in this movie, it kind of, seems to suggest that like everyone is kind of like you know you're when you're born you're the exact person that you're going to be because you have all these uh you have all these badges and that you know that you're going to be an archer and you're going to be <laughs> you're going to be difficult um so yeah it's kind of like messy i don't think it works all the time um i think the questions of death are probably like a bit more welcome and how he deals with it and he, it's kind of how he's dealt with death in movies before like it's something that's in kids movies since like bambi but um yeah i don't i don't think it it fully makes it but still no less enjoyable i'd like if you kind of strip away some of the other kind of sidelines and like subplots and bits that are going on behind like it ultimately i think is trying to ask the question of or just like pose the thing of like what how much is your life worth to you? And like, should you just do the things you love and enjoy the little things and stuff like that? Which I get why like during particularly like this period and time that we're in that people are doing a lot of self-reflecting on like, should I just follow that thing that I love, even though it may not be financially stable kind of thing? Um, And that's like, that's a really nice question or thing to make a film about it's like it's interesting um and it's even that whole thing of like he has to help 22 get to a point where she 
goes to earth where she is earthbound and they think it's that she needs to find her spark so the idea is that all these souls have to find their spark before they go to earth so they need to find the thing that they're good at and then they take that to earth with them and yeah like you're saying it's it's just it's a whole other big realm of questions that's like like a little bit too much to be handling all in one go so I think I tried to stick to just being like oh I think the, the the moral of the thing is just like do the thing you love appreciate the little things like like pizza and like leaves falling from the trees and you know live your life the way you want to <laughs> is that it I don't know yeah i think i think that's definitely there and i think like that is um that side of it and that those kind of questions like are are far more successful um you know you have joe kind of look down upon the fact that he's a teacher you know he he wants to be a a jazz performer because he loves jazz and like at the kind of beginning of the movie, he kind of get the impression that he feels like being a teacher is beneath him, even though like it shows in the, in the clip we played earlier that like he's a really good music teacher. He really cares about it. He really loves it. He's really encouraging to his students. Um, and then you kind of get a mirror image of that scene later. Really great scene. Um, and kind of one of the big influences the Kemp Power had was like, we need a scene in the barbershop. This is like, this is, you know, for the black community, this is where everyone goes to commune, to talk. And you have, uh, I believe, Dez is his barber. And at this stage, um, 22 is with inside Joe's body and Joe is inside the body of a cat. I don't think we've really talked too much about the kind of <laughs> the body swapping that is going on in this movie. Oh, yeah, this is a body a lot, horror movie as well. Yeah, it's, it's Cronenberg-esque <laughs> at times. <laughs> so um, Joe needs a haircut for his, um, for his show with uh, Dorothea Williams. And he's sitting in the chair and basically like Des welcomes him in once he sees that like he messed up his hair and he's like, you need to come in first. And um, 22, as Joe is kind of asking uh, Des questions that, you know, every time apparently Joe went in before, all he did was talk about jazz, which Des likes, but he's never really talked about his life. And Des has this talk about how he wanted to be a vet, but then he had a kid and, um, you know, veterinary school is really expensive and uh you know, barber school was a bit cheaper. So 22 was like, oh, so you're like, you know, you're desperately unhappy that you're not doing what you love. And he's like, no, I love what I do. And again, Des is clearly great at what he does. He brings joy to like everyone in the community. So like that kind of message of, um, I don't, I don't want to say it's just like be happy with your lot. Um, because I think it's, it's a bit more than that. Um, but I think kind of think it, it pushes back against the idea that like just because you love something that you need to commodify it, that everything that you um, particularly like seems to be a thing now, it's just like, you know, you can have a hobby, but it's like, oh, can it be a side hustle? And I kind of feel like this movie pushes back against that, which I think is a lovely message to have. Speaking of someone who's doing a free podcast, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, was it a Patreon forward slash no encore? If you Patreon. want to give us the price. Price of a pint or uh, a large popcorn in a theater once <laughs> they open again. Oh man, the, I, I, I can't wait! I can't wait for that to happen. It's going to be a while, probably. But uh, I, yeah, I miss our, I miss our, our cheap Tuesdays, whatever the fuck they called it. But hang on, um, like what you're kind of saying there tees up the contrast with uh, the film released on the same day, Wonder Woman 1984, uh, a film that we do not like. And uh, Norma, I don't think you've seen it yet, but I mean, like ultimately, the message in that film, or one of several. The message I, I took from that was like, don't wish for anything. It's bad. How dare you? And it was like, okay. Like, I mean, like, there's an, uh, obviously, like, you know, you're like, 
yes, greed is bad, but like there was this overall thing of like wishes are bad, wanting something else is bad. I didn't get that from Soul. There is, it is a little bit too on the nose, especially like at the end of the film. Like literally the last thing in the film is Joe saying to the camera, I'm going to live my life to the fullest now. And it's like, cool, that's very basic. And again, you know, kids movie to a degree. But I didn't feel... I wasn't like, fuck you, movie. But with Wonder Woman, I was like, fuck you, movie. Yeah, I mean, that that was just a mess all over the place. And, you know, the the idea that, like... Like, it, it, it's a quite a nihilistic one because it's just, like, basically, like, if everyone was granted a wish, like, you know, the worst impulses of us all would just, like, you know, bubble up to the top and, and spill out where, you know you'd have a cafe owner in London be like, oh, I wish all you bloody Irish would just fuck off. And then, like, the Irish disappear. This is actually a thing that happens in Wonder Woman 1984. <laughs> I'm not just, uh, you know, projecting. Um, well, yeah, like, th- this, you know, message-wise makes... Uh, yeah, it, it it makes way more more sense and it's more coherent. And um, I think it's, like, a genuinely good message as muddled as it as it is like i think yeah that side of it is great um questions of death and questions of the afterlife i don't think they really prod into it too much it's there but um yeah yeah i think ultimately its heart is in the right place so i guess in terms of like its conclusion uh, i'm gonna play a bit of music now from once again the boys trenton atticus this track is called epiphany i think it's probably the best piece of music in it and it plays over a quite beautiful montage so hit the music higgs So that's Epiphany by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross plays over a montage at the end of the movie essentially long story short spoilers 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 uh, Joe gets back to his body in on Earth 22 is kind of lost in the shuffle uh, Joe manages to join up with the jazz troupe and it's a, it's a hit but he's not really feeling it it's kind of not really giving him the satisfaction he thought it would and he realised that he misses his friend he realised that he made a selfish decision in kind of essentially robbing her of the chance to go to Earth in, in his place and sets about to try and get back, which is kind of not really explained, but he manages to do it. Um, but essentially, like, it's, you know, yeah, it's a bit of a sci-fi element, I suppose. But you get this montage of, you know, while this song plays out, of kind of, you know, Joe, when he was younger with his dad, listening to music, and then when his dad was older, playing piano together, and just lots of other kind of stuff, too. And I felt like, you know, this might sound like I'm damning with faint praise and I don't mean to, but, like, for an animated movie, I thought it was incredibly cinematic. There was just something about that montage that felt very accomplished and very kind of just filmic or something. It was just quite beautiful. Like, it was quite a lovely kind of uh, collage, I suppose. And the music that plays over it was w- w- was very, very strong. And I did find that that was kind of like the, I guess, the emotional kind of punch of the film. I mean, we can talk about the ending in a second, but overall, that was definitely a moment I thought where everything kind of, like knitted together very very well yeah um you know pixar um particularly pete doctor um if you're to take the start of up is like great at montage and yeah like i I agree like it is incredibly cinematic like there's just so many like small touches like it's like this big love letter to new york essentially um i'm thinking like 
there's just a scene of like Joe in a cafe with like the condensation on the windows or, you know, like the the water on the beach out in Coney Island. Um, yeah, it's a lovely, lovely, lovely scene. Um, we kind of haven't really talked about like, it, you know, it's it's a touching scene visually, um, like the visuals in this movie, like in New York, um, particularly having just like watched some early Pixar and like in terms of how far they've come along, the lighting in this movie is like jaw dropping um i'm thinking you know there's a scene where he like leaves the hospital and just like you go from kind of like a pretty like uh, sterile you know static to like out into the streets of new york and it's like it's so alive and throughout the movie not even that that uh that montage itself is like so 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 cinematic in a way that like lots of movies that are even shot in new york probably don't seem um but yeah, that that piece of music is an absolute knockout. I, at first, I thought it was actually John Batiste. I just kind of assumed because it was kind of like more. I thought like he was the stand-in for Joe, and then no, it was in fact the boys. It was the boys. Never doubt the boys. Um, so the ending of the film essentially is Joe makes a sacrifice, and it's built into that. It's like the noble sacrifice. He he wants to reverse things and give twenty two her shot at, at life, and it appears that he's accepting death. And I'm like wow this is a big fucking statement for the movie to commit to i was very very impressed but then they're like you've done such a good job you're so selfless we're gonna send you back to and i thought that was a bit of a cop out norma how did the conclusion of the film work for you um yeah i mean like with kids films it's always tricky because you do you do have to try and get the satisfactory ending where it's like the bad guy gets its come up and someone learns a lesson it's like and they get that second chance. Like there always has to be the like the one two kind of system to it. So he like I like twenty two was never gonna just be left in the dark space and not be able to go back. Um yeah, like it wraps it up in the best way that it can. It has a like I think I don't know if we've actually played that song already. It's all right. We introed it with that song. Um, like that song is really sweet and it is really uplifting by the end. It didn't like bother me that much. Um, but yeah, it was like, yeah, it's a strange one. I, fi- I feel like I <laughs> maybe maybe actually if I'd given it a second watch, I'd feel a bit more like solid with it. Um, yeah, I think they did all right. I'm probably asking a lot for them to kill off their yeah. lead, especially <laughs> is that, like, is that you what know, he wanted that it was just like he shouldn't have gotten the second chance yeah and especially like the first african-american lead i mean like like, like let's leave that cliche behind as well no, but i just it was always gonna but, wrap up but there was just a moment nice. there was a, like it almost reminded me of of all things star trek into darkness where like it had this very emotional scene where like kirk is like sacrificing himself and i was like oh wow that's bold and then they undo it in like five seconds and you're like oh okay cool fair play for trying were you like picketing outside the cinema uh, when they didn't uh, send all the toys into that incinerator in Toy Story 3? You're like, give me my kill scene. Hanratty needs his blood. Um, yeah, like, that was my is, sign. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's precisely what my sign said in red. It is very, very quickly wrapped up movie. It's like, you know, Deus Ex, Jerry, they kind of come in and just like, there you go. I was totally fine with it. Again, like... This is a movie primarily you would think made for children, um, so I don't think it, it was even, all that necessary okay. to uh, to 
to to kill off the main character, particularly when like he'd learned a lesson, like he 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 he'd he'd gone on a journey, he'd made a change. It would have been like like unconscionably nihilistic to then kill him off. Because <laughs> basically, Jerry like dupes Terry into like they like fix the numbers so because he has this giant abacus that he's like totting up all the dead souls that he's owed on it and they just like easily trick him and then terry's like oh look the numbers the numbers work it's all fine um terry is also voiced by rachel house who i think is in a lot of taika watiti films it's um like i actually didn't i didn't recognize her voice at all to begin with it's like a kind of a strange choice for um the sort of villain character voiceover but was a really interesting choice i thought generally again like i said it previous but the the voice acting in this i think was of a really really high standard really really i mean like uh, wes studi who played mogwa and last mohicans and popped up in heat as well and is very recognizable character actor he pops up for like five seconds uh in in this and i was like oh my god he's in this and then you never hear from him again but i was like ah it's still kind of nice to hear from him uh higgs had a bit of a knowing grin there because i mentioned the word heat but i didn't intend to bring it back to that but uh it's uh, 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 while i'm on the subject of the great wes studi i will say fa- fabulous actor did a great interview with the av club about his career a few years ago and there's an amazing anecdote where uh, he talks about post last weekends he couldn't really get any work and he was like sitting around thinking that's it I'm done as an actor I'm never going to work again and apparently he rang up Michael Mann's office uh, he knew Heat was being made and he rang up Michael Mann's office and was put through to him and he was like oh hey how's it going he goes I I, I hear you're making a movie with uh, me and Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and like Michael Mann like burst out laughing which apparently he doesn't do very often and then he fucking put Wes Duty in the movie and it was like <laughs> <laughs> that's so good uh, there's also a great moment in that interview as well story. there's also a great moment in the interview as well where like he because he, he, he popped up in Street Fighter as Sagat and there's like a bit in the interview where the interviewer asks him he goes okay listen um I've, I've been requested by readers of this feature to ask you quote everything about making street fighter and then there's a bit in like the text of the interview where it goes wes duty's publicist taking himself off silent on the phone and goes uh yeah i actually want to hear about that as well <laughs> it's just like <laughs> it's so cool higgs what do you got well now i kind of just want to talk about street fighter because if that, if that's like the the famous uh shoot where is it steven de souza who was like he wrote die hard like he wrote like a lot of the great action movies of the early 90s that you would know and Commando, love. I think, as well, possibly. Like, and yeah. he he got, I think it was his directorial debut, and they were shooting in, like, Thailand. Um, Jean-Claude Van Damme, if you were to believe uh, what Steven de Souza was saying, was, like, a absolute maniac trying to make it. I think there was, like, monsoons. It just sounds like, you know, give me the all-access behind, behind the behind the scenes making of um but yeah it was great to see him pop up there's actually a couple of other really good um uh, voice cast roles in this uh we mentioned angela bassa do agree not enough of her uh felicia rashad plays uh joe's mother um you know her from uh claire huxtable in the cosby show and then she was recently in creed as uh adonis creed's um mother that's like a great like their relationship is great he's kind of a little bit frosty to him kind of comes around um that was really nice and really well lived in i think that was something that um kemp powers said that he brought to it where um it was a conversation like he'd had with his own mother she's like you know is this kind of thing that you're chasing ever going to be you know 
is it ever going to amount to anything? Are you ever going to make a living out of this? It's probably something that everyone has probably had, uh, you know, a kind of crisis of fate about. Um, Questlove pops up, which is nice. He was also one of the... Um, they basically, they put through to, together a committee of, uh, again, uh, very much a white person uh, studio at Pixar. And they decided, like, before even Camp Paris came in, they reached out to people and they're like, we need to do this right. Um, so they reached out to Questlove, I believe Herbie Hancock, uh, Bradford Young, who's the cinematographer on like Arrival in a Most Violent Year. They brought him in. And I think that you can see his influence in it in something like how characters are lit. Um, you know, there's like a really, you know, history of cinema is awash with white directors and white cinematographers not knowing how to light black people. It's something Barry Jenkins talk, it's, talks about a lot. It's just like, you need to do it differently. Um, I think there was a big controversy last year where like Annie Leibovitz was shooting Simone Biles and it's just like, doesn't know how to um, light and to shoot a black person. It's, it's completely different. And by bringing in someone like Bradford Young, I think they did really well. Um, as I said, like this movie looks absolutely stunning. Um I guess, yeah, as a wrap-up, um, <laughs> Higgs is trailing off there. Uh, you've seen it twice. I have the privilege of seeing your letterbox. I know you're giving it four stars both times, so you're obviously a big fan. Uh, I gave it a three, but I will admit that when I watched it, I was very, very distracted by all sorts of things, including uh, I couldn't hear properly. Like, one of my ears got really fucked up on Christmas, um, and I had to get them syringed, which is an amazing experience that I would recommend anyone do if you have to, but I hope you don't have to get it done. But I was like a new man after I got that done, let me tell you. Norma, uh, where does this rank in the overall Pixar can? in for you and I guess did you enjoy it like like um, pretty much I did really enjoy it I felt like I was like kind of shitting all over it there for a while yeah, but no, it like <laughs> but like there's really beautiful elements to it like uh, like Higgs was saying New York looks gorgeous like it feels so alive and so interesting and fun and exciting and by the end of the film when you realise that the sticker that 22 needed was not a spark was not like a passion in life it was actually just a sticker of like where you'll end up in the world is it like your pre-decided city to go to um and i was like yeah i mean new york could be pretty cool it looks great in this film pizza rat appears um, <laughs> and uh yeah like it looks absolutely gorgeous the voice acting is fantastic the scores are really lovely as well um like i'm i don't know a lot about jazz um but i really enjoyed the music that was in it i do think like I can see how John Batiste was trying to make it authentic, but also accessible for like younger audiences and keep it interesting. He he mentioned that he worked in tandem with Reznor and Ross on the kind of the two scores for like reality and then the like Great Beyond slash U seminar, um, and that they tried to pick up elements of both scores and use them in each other's which I didn't quite hear um but they definitely don't like hit off each other in a bad way I still think they they sound quite nice they maybe don't sound as in flow with each other as they possibly could um but are very very gorgeous to listen to along with Epiphany which is like the standout piece of music from it 
earthbound as well i think there's like if you're listening to the soundtrack on spotify just after epiphany there's like four or five songs that are like they're also quite some of them are quite short that come together and it finishes with earthbound are gorgeous pieces of music and i think do really um summate that world quite well i mean like I really enjoyed it as well once I like I didn't worry too much about the larger questions at hand and you just like take everything that's in front of you yeah I really liked it I'd probably give it maybe maybe three and a half maybe four all right that's uh that's Pixar's soul it's available on Disney plus Dave Higgins has his hand up (laughs) (laughs) well well we know that you you said that you'd watch Ratatouille earlier and I did I liked um, it I, I mentioned earlier that I I was sent a a screenshot of a review of a, of a star rating I gave to a movie. I gave four stars to Monsters Inc. Mm-hmm. and was then called a monster by by my co-host. I didn't call Dave. you a monster. Did I call you a monster? Oh, maybe, you maybe, said maybe. you are the real monster. I was very oh. upset. To me. It's a five star film. Upset. It it's is the best. So, yeah, it's the so, best Pixar. Like so. So hey, what's you. your what's your Pixar top three then? Um, I mean, the thing about Pixar is like in truth, like I've kind of fallen off. Like like I haven't really paid attention to a lot of stuff over the last while. I mean, I think the last film I saw. Before this, before Ratatouille, I mean, like, I maybe Monsters University uh, in the cinema. Like, I didn't... I still haven't seen Inside Out. I haven't seen uh, Coco. I... Yeah, so, which I hear is great. Uh, maybe I will get to it now. I only watched Ratatouille today for the first time. It's out 14 years, and I thought it was great. Wow, Ratatouille I, so I never good. saw it. I just didn't, for whatever reason. Like, I like Pixar. I don't, I don't adore Pixar. Uh, but they can be good. Did we mention the New York Knicks joke in this movie, by the way, real quick? Which, which oh, is oh god, inspired. no, we didn't. It was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to explain the joke for a non-basketball? So the, yeah, it's just yeah. Over the, my head. Um, at one stage, um, twenty-two is in. They're in the the zone, which is basically uh, we didn't really touch on this. The zone is an area where both uh, lost souls go, who are these kind of like big, sad, lumbering uh, beasts that are. If you've ever played like Shadow of the Colossus, it's kind of it's reminding just about me of that. Yeah, um, absolutely. Where, where these these people go, and basically, lost souls are people who kind of get like so self involved in something that it becomes the only thing that they can focus on, and they become a lost soul. Um, but also in the zone are people who, um, when when you're in the moment, particularly, they kind of use uh, musicians. So like, there's a scene where like Joe is completely like lost in playing a song, and those people kind of like float around uh, in the zone. And 22 is like, oh, I love to come here and mess with people. And there's a scene where, like, um, there's someone doing uh, Romeo and Juliet, like the big moment. And she, like, throws uh, something at her. And, like, in the middle of, a, in the middle of a, like, a big soliloquy is, like, line. And then there's another one where it's like, oh, you see, see kind of like a, you know, very, like, cartoonish person playing basketball. And, like, they're going up and she's like, oh, I love it. I've been messing with these people for years. And throws, <laughs> hits someone. And it's like a gorgeous photorealistic uh, New York Nick going up for a dunk and missing it. It's got Doris <laughs> Burke, who's like the ESPN, the queen, like one of the greatest, uh, you know, color commentators in sport, uh, just being like, oh, and the Knicks lose again. So like the Knicks have essentially been in this kind of almost like cosmically hilarious downfall since like the 90s. If you're watching like The Last Dance, you probably saw like them up against Patrick Ewing. They've basically been abjectly terrible in some shape or form bar like maybe like one or two years so this joke was like it's so perfect but it's also a curse breaker because the new york knicks are currently like destroying teams in the nba even (laughs) though they have no good players 
I know I know friend of the show and uh, housemate of yours Richard Chambers probably loved this joke and also the effect that it's now had on them uh, he didn't love it at the time he loves it now I think because yeah like long-suffering Knicks fan uh, so yeah essentially like it has all those elements uh, it is a very good movie Pixar wise Monster Inc number one all the way like th- that's what I question my number one Pixar what's yours um, Ratatouille but yeah Ratatouille and then yeah after that I kind of don't know like Monster Inc is in the top five certainly also probably has like the best last shot of a movie just like you know, when Sully kind of goes into the door to Boo and you don't, you don't cut to Boo, you just see the look on his face and it's perfect. Uh, stop, you get me, because I will say, <laughs> I will say one, one thing about Monsters Inc. Every time I watch it, every time I watch it, even though I know it's going to be okay in approximately 60 seconds, when, when she opens that door and he's not there, I can't take it. <laughs> Norma, what's your number one Pixar movie? Um, like Monsters Inc. is probably up there up and maybe Toy Story 3 maybe Toy Story 2 I haven't seen 4 uh, again I kind of fell off the radar a bit with, with Pixar I, for, I keep forgetting they made a fourth Toy Story movie is it good? Have yeah seen it? actually it's fine <laughs> so that's what I expected okay listen uh, this episode of No Popcorn was edited by Tandem Felix sensation David Tapley go stream Tandem Felix make your fan cams uh, so essentially uh, February is just around the corner this episode will probably be out at the start of February so it's romance month of course Dave Higgins loves Valentine's Day and thus he has suggested this film for the next episode I'm not sure who you are but I don't want you to have anything to do with those people again baby I don't see you running up to daddy telling him I'm your guy well with my father it's complicated I will tell him. I I don't believe you, baby. She shows him all he can be. You gotta stop it now. I know what I'm doing, Penny. I'm scared of everything. Most of all, I'm scared of walking out of this room and never feeling the rest of my whole life the way I feel when I'm with you. What they learn from each other feels too good to be wrong. Dirty Dancing, starring Patrick Swayze, Jennifer Grey, and Cynthia Rhodes. Get ready for the time of your life. That's right, nobody puts Davy in the corner, it's Dirty Dancing. Higgs, I don't even need much of an explanation here, but you were pushing for this movie. I think you were like, I think you thought I would resist it. I'm like, nah man, let's do it. I haven't seen this film since I was a kid, so I've never really properly watched it. Yeah, I wasn't certain if if you had seen it um, or not, but... uh, yeah, I mean, we want to do a romance movie, uh, and it it was funny in in our WhatsApp group. Norma was like, "How does this qualify?" And I was like, "Excuse me, how does Dirty Dancing <laughs> I was qualify?" Just, I was simply just being like, "We have always maintained a tenuous musical connection." Um, tenuous, yeah. It's like we did we did a movie that was directed by Fred Durst. <laughs> oh, yeah, and you questioned me. Dirty Dancing. In fairness, you did have a very Fair, um, you, you had a very thorough, immediate response. You were like, "It's it was." I was put in my place <laughs> immediately. <laughs> like, it's 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 about dancing. It's won awards. It inspired songs. There are all kinds of spin-offs in the music. I was like, "Okay, right, did we'll it win do it. best song, yeah. or was it just nominated?" It it won one it won. Oscar winning time, and like. There's a couple of songs on the soundtrack that easily could have been uh, could have been Oscar the soundtrack that including you, that you have on including vinyl, the one it? by the That's star the itself. Sorry, the soundtrack that you have on vinyl that you proudly showed us the, your vinyl copy. 
Yeah, Dirty and maybe Dancing. I'll get the get the Blu-ray, the Steelbook, or is there a Criterion Collection version of Dirty Dancing? I'll be getting it. Well, there is um, that. Um, yeah. there is that Blu-ray with uh, with Dirty Dancing and Dirty Dancing Two Havana Nights from the mid two thousands. Yeah, I could I could get that as well. I've, it, has it been turned? I think it's been turned into like a clearly a stage musical, but I feel like there's is there a TV show of it now as well? I feel like is they're they? really milking the Dirty Dancing. I didn't even realize that there was a uh, Dirty Dancing Two Havana Nights. Is this like oh, a yeah. Grease 2 thing where it's just like nobody really talks about it? Yeah, it came out, I think, possibly during my Extravision run. I think it's Romala, Garay and Diego Luna. I could be wrong. I think Patrick Swayze's in it, possibly. But look, that's not what we're going to talk about too much. I won't be watching it. I assume Higgs will. And that's <laughs> that's next time on the show. It's Dirty Dancing. So uh, yeah, Norma, Higgs, thank you both so much. I appreciate thank it. You. And uh, yeah, this has been a popcorn. My name is Dave Hanratty. There's been a popcorn. I'm stumbling over my outro. Uh, right, that's the end of the show. See us. <laughs>